You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green-Smith, episode 444. You can find information on anything referenced in this episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP444. Oh, well, hey there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing, or your partner asks what's bothering you, and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Hello, pod people. Amy here. I am so excited to continue down our path of this mini-series that is all around identity work. And we heard from a brilliant expert last week. I dialed up my friend Sarah Dean, and we got to dig into a lot of conversation around identity, how that affects women, how that influences our various relationships, and what we can do to kind of shift that and take our power back a little bit if that piece of your identity has held you back in some way. And then coming up on the series next week and the week after, we are going to have two additional experts that I am so excited to share with you. One is from a a brilliant woman named Lopa Vandermersch, and we're going to be talking about how her identity was affected by being in a cult. And it was actually more of like a personal development type of cult. So you will absolutely want to check that one out. And then after that, I'm going to be speaking with Kara Barr, who is a coach specifically for queer individuals who want to maintain relationships with their very evangelically based family members, but they no longer identify as evangelicals. And I am exactly in that boat. (laughs) So we have a fantastic conversation about identifying as queer, identifying as atheists or agnostics or theists or wherever you might land. So I think that will be a really fantastic conversation. So that's coming up on the series. And be sure to check out Sarah's last week. We could not be more aligned. And she shares information in a very similar way that I do. So make sure to check out 443, last week's episode as well. But this week, I'm going to be sounding off solo specifically about some identity work that I use with my clients and my students. It's definitely a bit more abridged to fit into a short episode for you all, but I think it will be helpful in identifying some of the ways that you want to pay attention to self. One of the things that I hear pretty consistently from women who are in their 40s, 50s, sometimes even older is that they've lost a lot of their sense of identity to other things in their life and really kind of without intention, right? Where maybe your career took off and then before you know it, all you are is your job. You are that one role. You are defined by that role. Or it happens very frequently with parenthood. Once you become a parent, now all you are is mom. (laughs) And I remember my, or dad, or however you identify, I remember my mom talking about this when my father passed away. This is a good 15 years ago now that he, he died. But she really had to reckon with who am I? What are the things that I like? What are the things that I care about outside of being a mom and a wife? You know, all of her kids had left left the house. So that piece of the identity was was shaken a bit. And now she didn't have the role of wife any longer now that my father had passed. So it really started to jar her sense of identity. And it can create a lot of unrest. And I think, as we discussed today, I think you'll 
probably be able to pinpoint different times during your life where your identity might have been uprooted a little bit. And so we're going to talk about some ways to anchor into who you are, honor who you are, not have to make a bunch of apologies for it. So the first thing that I want to share is a quote, actually. And I searched high and low, but I cannot find who said it. But you can find inspirational memes about it. And it just spells out the words, I am. And then it says, two of the most powerful words for what you put after them shapes your reality. I am two of the most powerful words for what you put after them shapes your reality. So here's what I want you to start thinking about. I want you to think about two different phrases. And you might want to take a handful of days to just observe your own languaging around this, whether it is with other folks or internally to yourself. I want you to think about when you say things like, I am fill in the blank, right? That will be a noun. You'll be identifying as a specific noun. I am a blank or I'm so fill in the blank. And that will be obviously an adjective, a way that you describe how you are, a descriptor. So a couple of the things that that I've heard in the past that may come up for you, something like, I am so jealous or I am so controlling. I am a type A personality. I am quiet. I am liberal. I am a perfectionist. I am a people pleaser. I used to work with a a woman years ago in makeup artistry who had been with the company for years, and she would always say, I'm a dinosaur. And none of that stuff, like in the phrasing of it is not a problem at all. The topics and the the identifiers that we are choosing to align ourselves with really cement our reality. So if you are trying to break out of people-pleasing or let go of that grip on perfectionism, one of the first items of business is to stop identifying and naming yourself with these adjectives, these descriptors, or these nouns of who you are. Right. So if you don't want to be a perfectionist, if you don't want to be a people pleaser, stop identifying that way. Stop anchoring that in to who you are. Okay. so I would love for you to start by doing a free write with the words I am. So on your piece of paper, I want you to write out I am, I am, I am all the way down, like give yourself like 10 different I am sentence stems. That's what we call it if you're, you know, into a lot of journaling and things like that. You just need a sentence stem. So we start with I am, and I want you to just have that listed out at least 10 times. And then I just want you to do a free write. And I want you to associate all the things and write out all the things that you identify as. And just see what comes out. And then I want you to look back at the ones or look back at everything that you've crafted there. And I want you to pick out and circle the ones that you want to stay aligned with. Maybe you have something like, I am sensitive. For me, that's a fucking superpower. I want to stay sensitive. It means I'm a kind, compassionate, empathetic, feeling person. I want that. There might be some stuff on there like, I am an activist. You probably want to keep that one, (laughs) right? But there might be other things like, I'm I'm controlling or "I'm, I'm so jealous. I'm so self-obsessed. <laughs> you know, there might be certain things that you look back that you've been identifying as that you don't really want to keep doing. So I want you to circle the ones that you want to keep, and I want you to cross out the ones that you want to stop identifying yourself with. Okay? Now, if you want to up the ante and take it even further, you can create 
a, a really cool kind of manifesto. And I would suggest doing that after you've done all the exercises in this episode that so that you can have as much fodder to create this manifesto. But basically, when you've narrowed it down and nailed down, this is who I am, this is what I want to own, this is what I want, what I want to keep actively living into, then you can create kind of a manifesto of sorts. And you can find all sorts of cool ways to do that online and different templates and things like that, where you could create a really cool visual around this is this is who I am. This is how I identify. Speaking of you claiming it, let's talk a little bit about how other people have influenced your identity and how we have taken that on throughout our life. So I want you to think about how you've been labeled or branded throughout your life. So when when I do this work with my students, we do a, a really deep kind of personal branding exercise. And the idea is that we examine how other people have given us our identities over the years and then to really discern cognitively and consciously as we're looking through them, do I want to embody that? Do I want to claim that? Do I want to own that? Or do I want to dismiss it? Or do I want to rebrand that label? So I'll give you a couple of examples. Think about how it was growing up possibly in elementary school years, was there something that people always said you were? She's so shy. He's so funny. You're the one in the family that keeps everybody on their toes. You're so sensitive. You're the smart one. You're the bitch. You're the funny one. You're the strong one. You're so sensitive. You're clingy. You're needy. You're loud. You're too much. You're so quiet. And a lot of times when people give us brands or give us their labels, their perceived image of who we are, it comes with a certain connotation. So some people may have grown up with labels like, oh my gosh, you're so funny. And it has always felt like a good thing. Versus perhaps you had a family that said something like, gosh, you're so sensitive or you're so emotional or you're so needy. Maybe somebody in your latter years, maybe after we get out of elementary school and now we're into high school or maybe now we're into college or maybe it's your first relationship. Maybe it's your first job. Were there certain things that were said to you by anybody in your life? Doesn't even necessarily have to be a person of authority, but friendships, intimate partnerships, jobs, possibly voices of authority, people in um, a spiritual environment, you know, possibly church if that's something that you align with, best friends, even sometimes really well-meaning friends and family can throw out these monikers, these labels that really don't resonate well with us. Or maybe you gather some sort of implication, like you're really quiet, let's say, and let's say you have a really gregarious, outspoken, you know, demonstrative sibling that got a lot of attention for that extroversion, for being so gregarious and kind of loud. And they got lots of attention and everybody always thought they were kind of amazing or the golden child. And then when people would say, oh, you're so quiet, even if it's not malicious or mean, possibly that label, you could take it and infer that being quiet is a bad thing. Or I'm wrong because I have this specific trait that other people are perceiving. Okay, so I want you to think about in these various time periods of your life, growing up, childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, are there things that people constantly put on you, kind of ascribed to you? And then I want you to run it through this question of what was the tone of that label or that brand? Did I deem it a good thing? Did I experience it as criticism? 
Did I experience it as pressure? I know my best friend has talked about being labeled the strong one. And, oh, you have so much strength, which for many people I think would be like, wow, that's, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Would view it as a compliment. But for her, it felt a bit threatening because now it meant that she never got to fall apart. She had to keep everybody together. And there was this elevated level of responsibility because of that label. So I want you to think about what did I infer or what were the conclusions that I came to based off of that label that I was given? The responsible one, right? You're the responsible one. So God forbid you do something rash or make a quick financial decision that you don't run by a bunch of wise counsel or you get married really quickly or, you know, like then all of a sudden it becomes this threat to your identity because people have given you that moniker throughout your life. So what was the tone when people would say those things to you? Did you deem it a good thing? Was it criticism? Was it additional pressure? Like you're so smart, you're so funny, now I have to make everyone laugh, I have to be the entertainer. Was it something you inferred based off of other folks that you were around at that time. I know for me, there was a little bit of an issue financially growing up because my parents were missionaries and made very, very, very little money. But they managed to send all three of us, myself and my two siblings, to private schools and we always had heaps of scholarships and uh, financial aid and all sorts of different things in order to get us through that. But that also meant that we were in a very different socioeconomic position than the folks I was going to school with. So back in the 90s, my parents <laughs> would let me drive their like total junkabuster car. We called it the junkabuster. One of them. <laughs> uh, I've had I had multiple junkabusters, but one in particular. They would they would get rides to work and take one car so that I could take the other car to school. Meanwhile, all my friends would get cars on their 16th birthday. And back in the 90s, it was a big deal if you had a cell phone. Like they would all have cell phones, like those giant brick cell phones like in their cars and stuff. So at the time, there was a lot for me around I am the charity case. That was a piece of my identity. I'm the charity case. I'm the one who has to raise a bunch of money to try to go to the summer camps, whereas all the kids just their parents just paid, right? And granted, I'm speaking about all of this from a very privileged standpoint. I understand that having a private school education is unbelievably privileged. I I have no lack of understanding of that. But it definitely influenced how I viewed myself and how I viewed my relationship with money. And so those little elements of feeling like, okay, I'm the charity case, that eventually got me into a shit ton of debt because I wanted to really flex that, okay, I can provide for myself and I wanted to live a life different than how I was raised and influenced my relationship with money. So all of this stuff is very, very interconnected. And I had to work through a bunch of that. It used to be extremely difficult for me for somebody to be like, oh, let me treat you to dinner. I always felt like, no, 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 absolutely not. I'm not the charity case. And no, I'm going to pay for my part. And so, and that's, that dovetails into manifestation and our inability to receive. You know, that there's a huge element of creating what you want in your life. One of the major pieces of that is being able to receive it. Allowing somebody to love you, allowing wealth, allowing success, allowing deep friendships. A lot of it has to do with I'm willing to receive that. Some of these pieces of my identity, ways that I had really embodied, like I'm the charity case, I'm the missionary's kid, I'm the one who who never has the money, 
dovetailed into kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and got me into lots of debt and a lot of really difficult, difficult situations in my early 20s. So thankfully, I've worked through a bunch of that. But I want I just wanted to illustrate that, that sometimes the things that we identify with early on, I mean, these were my formative years. This was when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16. How that then influenced, I'm a this, I'm a charity case. How that influenced my relationship with money well into my adulthood. So I just want you to start thinking about that. How are you going to either embrace these labels that were given to you How are you going to reject them altogether or how are you going to rebrand them? The way that this can kind of look. Well, first of all, I just want to say a little word on the on reclamation. So you may notice that in the last handful of years, we've seen reclamations of specific words like bitch, queer, fat. There's a way in which these were all really negative derogatory words that we identified folks with that have now been reclaimed. Now we can say, I am a bad bitch. And you're totally flexing, as the kids would say. (laughs) Or now we we can say, I'm queer. And it's not a slam the way it was like the most offensive thing you could say to somebody, you know, in the 80s. Or even now with body positivity and anti-fat bias and body love movements, we're starting to see people say fat is just a descriptor. It doesn't have to be negative. That's what our society has done. And there's been this whole reclaiming of like, yes, I'm a fat woman. You know, yes, I'm a fat man, whatever, like moving on. I'm also an activist. I'm also an artist. I'm also all these other things. Let's move on from just these one simple descriptors. So I wanted to underline that because there's ways in which you can take how people have described you throughout the years and just reclaim it. In fact, I had a student many years ago who felt like all growing up, she was told she was a bitch. Like, oh, you always have resting bitch face or you're always kind of bitchy or you always have sort of this snide look. And she, let me tell you, is one of the most lovely, kind, sweetest gals ever. But she also happens to be fucking gorgeous. (laughs) And there can be times when people go, oh, you're beautiful. You must be awful. You must be a bitch. And who knows what her expressions were like. I don't know. But she decided, I'm going to reclaim that. I'm going to own that. I don't even have to re-engineer it. I don't have to rename it. I am going to say, yeah. I'm a fucking bitch. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) And it was a real power move for her. And she really was is genuinely one of the most kind, beautiful people. And so to see her own that was really kind of a. Yeah, I'm I'm taking back my power around this. I've done this a lot around emotional or so sensitive. You're so sensitive. You're too emotional. And I'm like, yes, I fucking am. And that is my superpower. It is my superpower to feel this deeply. So many folks have been conditioned through no fault of their own to guard up, to wall up, to never show their emotions. And in doing so, we don't allow the breadth of our humanity. And then no wonder we fucking overwork or we turn to things that that numb out our emotions because we think we can't be with them. So for me, to be in my emotions, to be sensitive Tell me all damn day because that is a power word for me. So for me, it was also an embracing. It was sort of a a re-engineering how I view that word. Now, there might be something that you've been told that you just want to reject altogether. Like, I'm not fucking shy. I'm just very discerning of who I want to spend my time with. I'm not shy. Or maybe you are on the autism spectrum, or maybe you have ADHD, or maybe you have something else that people have labeled you as like, oh, you're flighty, or you're forgetful, or you're this. It's like, no, I'm differently wired. 
I'm neurodivergent or I have ways of processing that aren't like other folks. So maybe you say like, no, I'm not shy. I'm not flighty. I learn differently. I'm spontaneous, right? So you might want to reject it altogether and then reclaim or claim an adjective that feels way more powerful to you. You're going to go back through this series of your life, you know, noticing what was given to you. And then you're going to ask yourself, what was the tone of the brand? Did I deem that a good thing or was that criticism? What came with that label? And then do I want to embrace it? Do I want to reject it? Or do I want to re- brand it. And some ways that I've seen students do this before too is to take a word like, you know, let's say, let's use the bitch example. You've been told you're a bitch your whole life and it was always really negative. And so now that word always just feels to you, right? Maybe instead you say, no, I'm fucking Wonder Woman. Like that becomes your new moniker the way you identify because you're like what they were talking about was my power how powerful how assertive I am you take that I've I've also heard one of my mentors who is helpful to me around financial stuff her name is Denise Stuffield Thomas I'll link to her stuff in the in the show notes she started some work with her daughter where her daughter was being told at school, and she's super young, super young child, you're so bossy, you're so bossy, you're so bossy. And Denise was sharing in one of her podcasts that she is training her daughter to say, when people say that to you, say, no, I am not bossy, I'm assertive, or I know what I want. I can't remember exactly what the phrasing was, but it was essentially like, no, I'm re-engineering what you're talking about. I'm going to rebrand what you're talking about. No, I'm not bossy. I'm fucking assertive. Or no, I'm not bossy. I'm a boss. (laughs) Right? So think about all of these things, how other people label you, how you've labeled yourself, how you've lived into what other people have labeled you as. And let's start thinking about how we want to identify. So you're going to decide embrace, reject, rebrand. So before we continue on, I wanted to ask a quick favor from you. Do you ever listen to the pod, and I think this might happen for you, where you think, damn, I really wish so-and-so could hear this. Maybe it's your coworker who could actually use a lesson or two on boundaries, or maybe it is a women's group that you're a part of where everyone is super on board for speaking up for themselves, but nobody really knows what that really sounds like. Okay, where here's where you come in. I have three battle-tested and badass keynote speeches that are ready to be delivered to your company, organization, group, association. So if you, your community, or anyone you know could benefit from me rocking the mic, like who can use some new tools, right? Please send them over to amygreensmith.com slash speaking where you or they can message me directly about specific needs for the audience. Shocker, the three keynotes are focused around speaking up, contending with fear, and accessing enoughness. And all three of them can be delivered either in person or virtually, and of course can be completely customized for specific audience needs. So again, simply send them to amygreensmith.com dot com slash speaking where they can get in touch with me because listen it is time that women everywhere have the tools necessary to use their voice take up space and advocate for their wants needs and opinions like yesterday and if you end up orchestrating an opportunity for me to speak with your group you will officially get unlimited squeezes from me (laughs) And I'm sure you're all in now. And be sure to let them know that I can always temper my colorful language if needed. And thank you. Before we continue, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And you know I'm a huge fan of therapy. I like to say if you don't think that you need therapy, then you probably need therapy. 
Because listen, without a healthy mind, being really, truly happy and at peace can really be a challenge. But the good news is that therapy really does work. So whatever you need help with, it is time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better, okay? Because you deserve to be happy. Here's the deal. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. Hello, introverts. I see you out there. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. They have over 20,000 therapists in their network, which gives you way, way more options than your immediate geographical area. And it's also available for clients worldwide. Much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in less than 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. In fact, a member of my family just started and totally loves it. It is always a good time to invest in yourself because of you deserve it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the Bold Face Truth podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash bold truth. That's betterhelp.com slash bold truth or enter the code bold truth at checkout again to save 10% off your very first month. All right, let's get back to the show. Then let's talk about number three, our life roles. So what is a life role? This is basically the person you are in relationship to something or someone else. And roles will typically take up a a decent percentage of your time and energy, right? We're not talking about just like, oh, I'm an ice cream lover, lover, Like, sure, that's definitely a part of your identity, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's a major life role, (laughs) right? Unless ice cream eating takes up a lot of your time and energy, (laughs) in which case, girl, I'm so jealous. Okay, roles will be things like I'm a parent, I'm a friend, I'm a sibling, I am a child, I am a singer, an artist, a leader, a manager, an employee, an activist, an athlete, anything like that where you have a very strong relationship to someone or something, right? So if you're an athlete, you have a very strong relationship with physical fitness. It takes up a decent amount of time and energy. If you're an employee, you are in relationship with an employer. So you want to just think about what are these various roles in my life? And I would say, depending on who you are and how active you are, we we typically have between like five to eight to 10, maybe I would say around eight major roles in our life, who we are in our families, who we are in our work who we are in our leisure time. So I want you to start thinking about your life roles. And I want you to depict them as circles on a piece of paper. And I want you to make the circles indicative of the percentage of time and energy you give to this role. So they're either going to be a really small circle or they're going to be a really large circle or a medium circle. I just want you to get a visual representation of where does most of my life role take up my majority of my identity and time and energy. And when I first did this exercise, I was actually introduced into this probably, oh gosh, this is approaching 20 years ago. And Jesus Christ, I can't believe it's been that long. But this was at, at least 15 years ago, I was a part of a workshop from the Hudson Institute, which is a coaching establishment in the Santa Barbara area. And they introduced me to this way to graph out the roles in your life. So you want to think about, in addition to all of these other roles, there is a relationship that we have to ourselves. Like what is the relationship to self like? How much room and energy and time do I give specifically to me when I'm not 
parenting or I'm not being a child of someone or I'm not being a spouse to someone or I'm not being an employee or a manager. Who are you in relationship to self? And I'll tell you what, when I first did the exercise, I completely forgot myself bubble. I completely forgot myself bubble. And it was such a metaphor for where I was at the time. I was a bit in a quarter life crisis. I was in my early 20s, mid 20s. And I felt like all I was 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 my job was only somebody else's passion and vision and not really mine. And I didn't have a very good pulse on how to cater to all of the different elements of who I was. So at that time, my role as a wife, my role as a friend were not very strong. So if I would have depicted my roles at that time, it would have been this massive bubble of career. I was working as a makeup artist for a prestige makeup brand. I was a a corporate trainer and traveling and doing lots of very fancy things for someone so young. And then all my other bubbles were super tiny. Like spouse was small, friends were small, family was small, and that was most of it. And then I completely forgot to put my self-bubble in there. So once you have that written out, you can start examining how would I want the sizes of these bubbles to change? And you can also do this if you don't If you don't think in visual terms like that, you can break all the roles down into just a percentage, like mm, 10% goes here, 50% goes here, et cetera. So if you think more along those lines, you can certainly do it in that way. I have found that just visually being able to see the sizes of the spheres tend to resonate with a lot of folks. So I want you to depict how it is right now. And there could be things that you want to change. Like let's say you would want to add in a partner bubble. Maybe you're single right now and you would want a partner. Or maybe you want to add entrepreneur instead of employee. Maybe you want to add parent and you aren't a parent as of yet. So we can have these different levels of our identity where we go, oh, Here's what I want to add to my roles in my life. And I had one that (laughs) at one point, I remember, in 2014, Mr. Smith's mom came to live with us. And she was dealing with a lot of health issues. And so because I worked from home, I ended up being a decent caretaker for her in a lot of ways. And so I was doing a lot of the appointments and the doctor's visits and just a bunch of different things like that. And truth be told, I'm not a natural caretaker. If any of y'all have been with me for any length of time, you'll know I'm not interested in being a parent. I've never wanted to take care of children. I don't I don't enjoy it. And I don't think that we all are wired that way. And I think that's completely fine. So having that role of caretaker was something that I knew was going to be a part of my life for that season. And it was taking up a decent time, amount of time and energy, but it wasn't necessarily something I was willing to eliminate. It was something I very deliberately chose for that season of my life because it was the, it was the people that we wanted to be, Mr. Smith and myself. That's who we wanted to be in this world. We wanted to help her in any way that we could, even if it meant participating in a role that wasn't wasn't really ideal. So for me in that situation, had I depicted my life roles at that time, I probably would have said I would like to eliminate the caretaker role at some point. That's not my ideal life role to have on there. So you can, once you have them kind of graphed out based off of what your current life roles are, now you can start going like, what would I want to change about this? Are there any of these bubbles, these circles, that I would want to make smaller? Are there any that I would want to make bigger? Are there any that I would want to add a brand new one, you know, add in a brand new bubble here? Are there any bubbles I would want to take out 
altogether. And then I want you to think about what is one step that I can take right now to get me towards my optimal life roles, the way that I really would would want to spend my time and energy. So you might look at that and you might go, geez, my friend bubble is really, really tiny. I'm missing and craving connection. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call up my bestie and I'm going to plan a girl's trip. Or I'm going to call my neighbor and see if they want to go walk around the neighborhood next Tuesday, you know, and go for a walk. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It might even just be texting someone that you miss them or setting up a, a quick phone call. Maybe it is you're wanting to change from an employee to a business owner, to an entrepreneur. So the first baby step in changing that life role might be to research schooling options, additional education. Maybe a baby step is talking to a friend of yours or a family member who is in a line of work that you're really curious about. And you're thinking, hmm, I could really do that. Maybe it's researching different levels of certifications or what might be needed to start a business. Maybe it's just taking a, a, a business class. So it can be really small baby steps. It doesn't mean I need to go start a business tomorrow. <laughs> it might be just, okay, let me think about what are there options for me to limit the hours that I work and put a little bit of time away each week to work on building a business. So think about what's one small baby step that I can take. Maybe look at those life roles and think, okay, which one feels the most like, ugh, I really need to move that mark. I really need to move the needle there. Which one is that? Is it is it your role as an activist or is it, you know, it's obviously going to be different for everybody. Maybe you want to spend a little bit more time with friends. Whatever. Maybe it was even a role that you had ages ago. Like maybe you identified as an athlete in college, but after you got involved in your career or kids came or whatever, you haven't done anything athletic. So maybe it's, you know what, I want to rekindle that. Maybe I join a rock climbing group or maybe I sign up for a mud run and start training. You know what I mean? So you can start deciding what are those, what are those baby steps. Okay. And then fourth and finally, I want to just talk briefly about how changes in roles inevitably create a change in identity. And then the change in identity creates a whole change of emotion. So it becomes kind of a, a slippery slope. We make a change in a life role. Like, for example, all of a sudden, I'm now a caretaker. I didn't expect to be a caretaker. Now it is shifting my identity a little bit of like, I can't I can't do that because I got to get home or I have a doctor's visit that I have to take my mother-in-law to. So now I'm in this new identity of I'm a caretaker, at least in this season. And then that brings a bunch of emotions. I was super frustrated to be the, the partner that worked from home that it was like, oh, well, you you can do it, you know, and granted, Mr. Smith was extremely supportive, but it was difficult. It was just genuinely a really, really difficult time. I was doing a lot of theater at the time, too, so that put a lot of pressure as well. In fact, that is a role as thespian or as actor <laughs> that I do not have at all. I don't have that role anymore, and I would love to add that back in. And so I need to start thinking about now that things have opened up a little bit more, do I want to audition for a show? Do I want to pick up an improv class? So there I was just coaching myself a little bit. Thanks for going on that ride with me. <laughs> but it will incur different levels of emotion. In fact, when when I stopped acting and that role was removed from my identity, I was pretty devastated. Like I, I 
it was largely because we were moving from California to North Carolina and I had no idea what theater was available. But because I was the breadwinner at that time, I really, really had to focus on business. And then as soon as that was like a well-oiled machine, then pandemic hit and that was virtually impossible to do acting at that point. So now I'm at this point where I'm like, ooh, possibly I can add that role back in. But at the beginning... There were a lot of emotions, a lot of grief around, I don't have a show coming up. And it was, I remember very dramatically telling my best friend, like when I think about those times, when I think about being on the stage, when I think about different events that I've done, it would it would break my heart to think about it because I missed it so much. It was such a huge outlet and I, I just genuinely loved it. So there might be ways in which these role changes are adding some emotional strife. Now, sometimes it's fantastic, right? Sometimes you maybe you now are, let's say you did open your own business and now all of a sudden you're a business owner or you're an entrepreneur and it feels fucking awesome, right? And you might also have some trepidation, some oh my gosh, can I make this work? There's going to be a slew of emotions that follow suit anytime we make change, anytime we make change. In fact, I remember my husband's bestie, she was talking to me about a really pivotal moment that she had when she, it was early, early on in in motherhood for her. She had just had her baby and she also had agreed, I believe, to watch her niece. So she had these two babies and it was like a Friday night, something like that. And it just hit her all of a sudden, like a wave that, oh, I'll never be not a mom ever again. I'll never have that freedom of worrying only about myself versus worrying about keeping this human alive. (laughs) And she had to go through this little grief process of like, okay, there's been a change in the role. I am now a mother, which has changed my identity, which now changes how I feel. And so there's no hard and fast rule around this. It's just more of an awareness that anytime we change those roles, anytime the identity does shift, there's going to be emotions. And sometimes it's a super comfortable emotion and sometimes it's not. So I think just giving yourself that permission that even if it's something that's seemingly good, like starting your own business or maybe now you're getting a promotion or something like that, it can be so easy to go, why are you sad? Why are you feeling grief? Why are you feeling overwhelmed? This is a good thing. This is exciting. And You're allowed to experience dichotomous emotion where you're feeling both things. You're feeling an excitement and a sense of longing for maybe your past workplace or a sense of community or a sense of sadness from missing the camaraderie of the, you know, the the workplace that you used to, to operate in. So we can experience all different types of emotions. I'm going to link to uh, a couple emotional intelligence podcasts because I think that's really, really important for us to know that a lot of times when we're feeling something, we make it mean something catastrophic like, oh my God, did I make the wrong choice? Should I not have become a mom? Should I not have taken this job? And not always. Sometimes it's just about us navigating change. In fact, I think it is the Grief Institute that has a definition of grief as it's something to the effect of we have to process our emotions any time there is a change to our schedule or our behavior. That's literally all the things. It basically means we need to process the fuck out of any type of change. Now, a change in like, your schedule might not be as dramatic as a change of moving from one state to another or another country or having a baby. You know, there's going to be different levels of emotional uh, lifting, I guess, that you're going to have to do depending on how severe the situation is. 
But just knowing that anytime we vacillate in our roles in our life, that's an element of change and we're going to feel it. And just giving yourself that expanse to feel. All right. So there you have it. Four ways to understand and honor who you are, really doing this identity work. Obviously, today I've given you a lot of assignments. I'm a huge, huge fan of assignments. I don't think that much changes without us getting really serious and contemplative and intentional and writing shit down and making definitive actions and choices about identifying ourselves different, not calling ourselves a people pleaser if that's something we're trying to relinquish. This is the work. Like when we talk about you've got to do the work, this is what I mean. You need to sit down with a piece of paper and you need to take an inventory over the next couple of days of how do you describe yourself to others and in your own head, right? That's number one. I am. I'm so this. I'm a this. Doing that free write. Thinking about the brands. That's number two. How have I been labeled throughout my life? Is it something that's a good thing or a bad thing? Do I want to keep it? Do I want to <laughs> let go of it? Number three, evaluating my life roles. Deciding on an action step, something that I can do to take me into more of an optimal life role situation. And then fourth, recognizing that anytime there's change like this, those of you who've ever had kids going to kindergarten for the first time or kids who graduated from high school or college, all of that stuff is change and it affects your identity, right? Like you're not the same mom of a four-year-old as you are of a 24-year-old. That's a different identity, having young kids versus adult kids and a whole array in between. So noticing that emotions are going to happen. Sometimes they're comfortable, sometimes they're uncomfortable, but they're going to be present if there is some sort of shift in emotions and that, or a shift in identity, shift in roles. And that just means give yourself the permission to process. That's it. All right. So thank you for hanging in here through our second episode under our identity series. We're going to have two more coming up next week, as I mentioned. And I really hope that you enjoyed what we talked about today. Please scoot over to Instagram. I hang out there the most. And I would love to hear from you what your biggest takeaway was and what hit home for you from this episode or even what you uncovered through some of the exercises. You can find me over on Instagram under the handle Hey Amy Green Smith, and I would love to hear from you. So I think that's it. I will see you around these parts next week. And please remember, your voice matters. You are enough. So please go out there and tell the bold-faced truth. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding. But I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.